Hello, I'm Cormac. You're listening to Queerly Beloved, supported by Amazon Music. In this series, I invite DJs and musicians, friends and allies from the LGBTQ plus community to talk about music, queerness and anything else that shapes their unique story. It is my hope that in sharing our individual experiences, we can learn and grow and focus on our similarities rather than our differences. You can find all of the music mentioned in today's episode and each episode at the link in the episode description. Today, I am talking with Andy Butler from Hercules and Love Affair. Hercules and Love Affair changed the sound of homo dance music, and I've been a fan for quite some time. Andy is also a great DJ in his own right. We talk about many things today. You'll hear us talk a little bit about Susie. That's Susie and the Banshees. Anyway, here is my conversation with Andy Butler. I know who you are, but I'm going to ask you who you are and how you identify and what you do. Well, my name is Andy Butler. My pronouns are he, him, though quite often I don't feel that way inside. I feel quite different at different moments. Yes. Very happily. It wasn't always that way, but, you know, I love and embrace my feminine side. And I guess my musical journey or my journey in life really has been centered around music. And that musical journey started as a a young kid writing music on the piano as a way to sort of escape the chaos that was happening in my household. So I would just sort of wander over to a piano and just try to be ignored for as long as I could. And my parents noticed I was writing music and that was how the like the musical journey began. And ultimately, I guess the trajectory of my life or the main thing I've done or quote unquote career that I ended up with is that of a musician and a DJ. I do both things, but I'm I would just say artist in general. I think the best and easiest way to describe myself is just artist. I make stuff, I do some creative writing, I make jewelry. I sculpt sometimes. I do lots of different things. Did you grow up in an artistic house? Not at all. I grew up in a very uh, sports-oriented house in America, in the middle of America. I did have a, a mother that had yeah, a very cultural background or element to her being. I mean, she was the daughter of a seamstress. And so she was also quite talented when it came to making clothing and had a real natural knack for colors, which obviously is where I picked it up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mom definitely, she's an artist. She just never, I think, really was able to pursue that properly um, because she became a housewife and mother of five children in a very... um, male-driven, sports-oriented, not-so-much-room-for-culture kind of household. Mm. Yeah, so we didn't have, like, paintings on the wall in my house and stuff. Like, we didn't have incredible works of literature lingering around. I got those at school. And the music that they listened to was definitely from their generation, but a couple of bits infiltrated into the household. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I definitely heard some very cool music at a very young age, but it was totally by accident. But you were taking piano lessons or were they encouraging that? Yeah. So, I mean, they saw that I was just at a piano and my mother came into the room one day and said, what are you doing? You've been in here for two hours. And I said, I'm right. I'm playing a song that I wrote. And she was like, really? And I, I said, yeah. And she said, would you like to take piano lessons? And I, I said, okay. And then both my mother and father, despite the unique personalities that they were, which were very different than me, they were encouraging when they recognized something in us. And so they put me in piano lessons, but they also um, put me in piano lessons with a teacher who fostered and encouraged writing. So I went and I started to work with a teacher who was focused on composition. And I started to like learn how to notate music and all of this stuff at a young age, which I became quickly bored of. <laughs> but that's, that's all super fascinating to me. I get fireworks in my brain just, just picturing you in that scenario. And I think about parents of that generation and how being crafty and maybe it's home furnishing or maybe it's fixing clothes or yes but there's an artistic side to that but it's very much pushed over into the feminine kind of archetype of what the mother should be doing so there's this idea of like art being a more feminine thing in a way I agree completely and I think it's also illegitimized you know like my mother was an incredible homemaker like she knew how to decorate a home like when we would have holidays, like St. Patrick's Day, you, we came downstairs. The milk in the cereal bowls was green. Love her. There were four-leaf clovers everywhere. Her art or her expression of creativity came through making a beautiful home for us aesthetically. And she, she was a very sensitive person. But I think you're right. I think it's relegated to like... Oh, that's not art, you know? Yeah, or that's that's over being cutesy with the wife at home, I'm out earning money kind of bullshit thing. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, both had a huge impact on me. My father put a roof over my head. He, he helped me, paid my way through school. He encouraged me to, you know, get in touch with my body at moments like, yeah, physically active and all of that. But my mother created this really sumptuous and like, a place to imagine things, you know, like a um, a vibrant uh, environment. So holidays were always really kind of spectacular just because she would put a lot of effort into making things beautiful for the kids. So all our Halloween costumes were made by her and it was fun. You know, she was a very creative person, but... Did she ever show a piece of art in the Gagosian gallery? No, but she was an artist. Yeah, and, and might have no doubt had more impact on you than anyone hanging in a gallery. Yeah. You mentioned us. So did you have brothers and sisters or do you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I have three brothers and one sister. I am the second youngest we're all about two or three years apart. Okay. And I have a queer younger brother who I'm very, very close to and have been close to since we were, we were clinging to each other from the moment we came out, like, <laughs> you know, very bonded. Um, and 
He's also a musician, incredibly creative, my best friend. And yeah, it's, it's amazing having a queer sibling. We're kind of similar looking. There's a term called Irish twins. I know that, yeah. Yeah, you're not twins, but you're close enough in age where you sort of look the same. So people would run up to him on the street and hug him thinking it was me. And the same would happen to me, them thinking it was him. <laughs> so we're very, very oh. close. And then, yeah, my sister I'm very close to and my other brothers. I have a very good relationship with them all now. It's interesting because, you know, in the podcast, in the series, I'm interested in in many things about my guests, but we're kind of charting the trajectory of life through music. And, and something that we touch on is this idea of the kind of intergenerationality and gay mentors and gay siblings and, and having that queer connection within the family. Because very often, if you're queer in your family, you're kind of a minority within your family as well. And many other minorities, you might be a minority in the world and then you go home and you're kind of, you know, among your clan as such. And often in queer families, you go home and you're kind of also the only queer. So that's fascinating that you had a queer sibling. How were your family with that stuff? I think it's a very astute observation what you were just pointing out. I think that for me, before my younger brother was really able to put words to his experience. I just needed to be outside of the house. Like as much as I could be, I needed to be away from the house because I felt so isolated. Like I would go home and feel like a very, very alien person. It really did force me to, as I said, like I would go to the piano and just sort of try to become invisible or I would try to leave the house as much as possible because I didn't have a reflection of myself or my experience or I didn't have someone talking to me about what was going on with me in my household. Yeah, There was quite a bit of silence actually around it. The silence was broken when I was 15 years old. Well, actually more like 13 or 14. My parents noticed that I had started to bring in like gay newspapers sort of to tell you what was going on in town and they found them and they were like you know what is this and I was like it's just a magazine that's like talking about events going on in town and the response was you know don't bring that stuff into the house anymore and I said to them okay I won't but you should know I'm gay and my mom said okay that's your decision Mm -hmm. which was an interesting response. But she also, she welled up in tears, you know, because one of the things that was kept quiet in my family was that I had an uncle, her brother, who died of AIDS very early on. And um, unfortunately, we didn't get to know him. And so there was like a sort of blanket of silence and almost shame, but it was more sadness Mm -hmm. But I just busted out at that moment. I was just like, I'm not going to put on a charade for you. And I'm going to tell you who I am. And it took a, a while longer for my brother to speak his truth. Even to me, it was hard for him to come out. But when he did, it was like, it all made sense. Because why else would we be best friends and have the same sense of humor? Thinking a little bit backwards towards 
before coming out and those, you know, years in the house, like experimenting on the piano, you know, you said you kind of wanted to get out of the house or escape as much as possible and your mom making creative St. Patrick's Days and stuff. Is there a record that you might associate with those very early days of when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, there is a record. One of my fun moments was having like a Fisher Price record player. Uh-huh. We were maybe I was about seven, and my younger brother's about five. And my parents had they had like a lot of there was a fair amount of like kind of Christian music and stuff in the house. But we found a seven inch of Steve Miller band, uh, Abracadabra, and. <laughs> <laughs> On the B side, of, if you know that record, is Macho City, which is uh, many a gay party have been Prophetic. named after. Yeah, have been, have been named after that one. So my little brother and I used to put that on and dance to Abracadabra all the time. So that would be probably my first memory of like taking a piece of vinyl and enjoying it. You know, that's very prophetic. And you know, when you see those memes or those jokes of parents going. I had no idea you were gay. And then it's like, well, look at the record I was playing when I was seven. <laughs> yeah. By the way, we were, we were physically in the closet listening to the record. <laughs> oh, physically in the you closet. Know, we were, wow. We were physically in a closet listening to Abracadabra and Macho City at seven and like five years old. Do you remember why you were physically in a closet? Was it something like slightly naughty to listen to music or? No, that's just where everything was. That's where all the stuff was, you know. Okay. As I said, they didn't have music on display or. Was it a religious house? Yes, to a degree for sure. You know, I'd still say my dad is, is religious. My mom is spiritual. I grew up as a an altar boy. Same. In a Catholic school. I went to an all-boys Jesuit high school. Same. I played American football at that Jesuit high school, which is kind of funny uh, in retrospect, but it actually was a very rewarding experience. Mm. I came out while I was on the football team, which was also a very interesting experience. Wow. To think in 1994... I was on an American football high school team and everyone on the team knew I was gay, you know? And was that after you'd come out to your mom? Yeah. I came out, I didn't say anything, but we had a non-uniform day. I also went to an all-boys Christian brother's school and we had this like uh, non-uniform day and we would have them like every few maybe twice a year or something. And towards the end of school, I went to school in a gay liberation t-shirt, which was kind of quite clear, the message. And it was fascinating for me because it was an act of anger and defiance and getting on my own team finally. And it was very interesting for me because in making that statement, a lot of the shit I got about being gay just stopped. I learned in that point of like, Trying to be something you're not doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for them either. And it's better just to be clear sometimes and uh, take pride as best you can and own who you are as best you can. I had that message quite early. 
Yeah, I remember those dress as you like days because mm-hmm. I had them too at my school. And I'll never forget <laughs> showing up in like six inch platform shoes that my mother made for me. Creative. I love your art, mom. Artist. And a pair of Shakespeare print bell bottoms and like a little t-shirt. But two guys from the football team walked by me in the hallway and under their breath, you know, they did this cough, like, <clears throat> faggot, faggot, yeah, faggot. And I just remember turning around and looking at them and saying, did you say something? We want, please say that to my face. Come say that. And I just started, you know, I went in and it was one of those moments where it was like, again, kind of, as you said, I asserted myself and I continued to assert myself and people did not mess with me. Mm. It was almost like. I'm going to demand your respect, you know. You're going to have to give it to me or we're going to have words, you know. Yeah. I think that that moment that you're talking about where you sort of like assert yourself and you make it clear so that people don't have questions about, oh, he, he's weird. He, What's off with him? He's bizarre. He's, he's queer. Yeah. You know, when you finally say, yes, I'm queer, they all start to shut up, you know. <laughs> That's a really clear way to look at it. I also feel like there's this kind of disconnect, this divisiveness to just being in conflict with the reality of things. And like when something just is apparent, there's kind of no arguing with it. Yeah. It's like that track, you can't hide from the truth because the truth is all there is. It's like the reality is kind of kind or something. Reality is as it is. You were mentioning kind of coming out and that was also very, I think, courageous and defiant of sorts to to bring your gay event newspapers home. I remember creeping into the local newsagents where my parents would buy the Sunday newspapers after chapel, like after going to Sunday mass. And I remember creeping in there and buying like the first or the second edition of Attitude magazine, which was like... Wow the new gay magazine. There had only been the gay times before that, but attitude kind of seemed less political and more 90s. And, uh, (laughs) you know, because everything looked good in the 90s, didn't it? There was no politics. (laughs) Um, I remember buying it and just, you know, whether I was going to read it, whether I was going to enjoy it, it really felt like, wow. Because I was in denial about my sexuality for a long time. And I... You know, I didn't have any reason to be excited about being gay. I didn't have any good role models. I wasn't getting any good feedback about it. But there was something in me that was defiant and saying, like, you're probably gay. Go and buy that magazine. (laughs) But I wasn't bringing it home and letting my parents see it. Yeah, I mean, they found it. Eventually, I mean, there was a period of silence, you know, between us. But I just carried on, you know. I still, I just went to school and still did my thing and. I'll never forget having to present a science biology project as a 17-year-old at that Jesuit boys' school, maybe 16. I had been going to a gay youth center at the time, and I met a young man. He was like 17 years old who was HIV positive. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do my project about HIV and AIDS, and I'd like you to come in and talk to my class. Okay, wow. And when I brought my friend into the school and told my teacher what my presentation was going to be about, you know, he took me aside and he he was like, I'm not going to stop you from doing this, 
but he cannot mention how he contracted this disease. He cannot mention his sexuality, all of these things. I just nodded, nodded, and nodded. And then I looked at my friend and I was like, girl, say whatever you got to say. And he just went in there and he told his story to a bunch of boys in a Jesuit high school. I didn't get a good grade. Incredible. But I helped educate a couple of kids probably. That's incredible. I had a very minimized version of that in that it was very religious, the school I went to, and there was a debate module, let's say, where we had to debate things. And my topic, which I suggested, was uh, gay equality and gay rights or human rights. And my teacher pulled me aside and, and said, we're not discussing that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get as far as you got, and I certainly didn't have anyone to bring in, sadly. But yeah, there's that kind of repression, oppression, shame. I mean, we see it as well, you know, like, don't say gay as well, like what's happening in Florida. Let's completely disempower, disenfranchise. And just not deal with reality. It's kind of like what you were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. Let's just confuse everybody even more. Let's not let the kids figure out who they are. And let's not let all the other people just accept who everyone else is. You know what I mean? It's like, Mm. sadly, the evangelical Christian kind of uprising is so so mm-hmm. serious there and very real. Mm. I do appreciate living in a more secular society in Europe, I have to say. Is there a record that you can associate with those times in school or finding that power and that bravery and that there's a defiance to it, but there's a big self-love to it as well? Is there a record that takes you back to there? I say the same boring answer in every interview, Cormac, but <laughs> the first record that like made me realize like, A, there's a spectrum that we're living on and B, I'm on some other side of the spectrum. Like I am there. Yeah. And it was hearing Alison Moyer's voice for the first time, being in the car with my mom, putting in the cassette and my mother being really concerned because she couldn't tell if it was a male or a female singing. Wow. And it was situation. And for me, it was all about Vince Clark's synth hook. You know, I mean, of course it was about the vocal. I'm not saying it wasn't about the vocal, but it was that moment where it was kind of like, what's going on here? And I was just like, what's going on here is what's going on here. You know, there's no problem here. What's the problem? It also had that great Euro disco kind of, it was still in that era of, Euro disco, you still had that influence. I mean, there was a queerness about those productions. And I think that would be probably the one where I felt like um, bolstered, perhaps, and pushed a little bit into feeling like boy, girl, it doesn't matter. Like, what's the problem? What a great record. And to romanticize it a bit, but you know, that's you, that's me, blue eyed, dressed for every situation. Exactly. At those, <laughs> at those early tender years, you know. <laughs> yes. But it's fascinating this thing, you know, about gender and this soulful voice. It's something that I've touched on with other DJs that I've interviewed. And there seems to be something about the soul vocal. Yeah. That overlaps with gospel, yeah. that overlaps with this transcendence of gender and is queer. Yeah. Ironically. Absolutely. It's kind of, it's wild. It's like, it's, uh, you know, you see it with Sylvester, you see it uh, with Daryl 
Um, Pandy. Thank you. And uh, y- you see it with a lot of... The early Jamie Principle. Yeah, you see it with also, a lot of yeah, vocalists. And, and it's crossing over into this gospel celebration, uh, euphoric, uplifting ability where it's bringing people together. And it's it's kind of, it's like, it's like queer mysticism, a soul vocal. Absolutely. Vocals, I mean, when you get into the 90s, those were the ones that really, you know, sent me into outer space. Oh, yeah. uh, you hear India sing for the first time. You're like, oy, 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 you know, or mm-hmm. any of those Merck records, like Some Lovin' by Merck. I love that track. The heartbreak and, uh, yeah, the rawness. Those moments especially, uh, I would say, fueled my sense of, yeah, just feeling more comfortable and more attuned and prepared for what life was going to bring. You know what I mean? There's a lot of songs about struggle, um, but then there's a lot of songs about release and redemption, redemption. Yeah, you know, and the possibility mm-hmm. for something better. Those are church songs, really. You know, those are really uh-huh, like church uh-huh, songs. A hundred percent. And there's an irony there to the religiosity that opposes the inspiration and the transcendence of what that music provides and this kind of weird morality around gender and gender roles and sex. And and when you think of Alison Moya, you know, I think of this great, quite non-binary, gender-confused or confusing gender blending. I mean, you know, Annie Lennox had it, Grace Jones has it. That first Eurythmics album was the other thing. I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for a synth hook. So Sweet Dreams situation they both had these incredible synth hooks yes and so obviously i became obsessed with the synthesizer i was a piano player but then the vocalists attached to those songs i mean for a lot of people that was a mind fuck a proper like what are we getting into here you know there's a stripped coldness to that synth and then there's this warmth to the vocal to the vocal and the way those things mix and when i think of those women as well i think about Growing up in a patriarchal society with very defined gender roles, you know, we spoke earlier about art being seen as feminine, but then you have these female characters who are actually not, at least visually, adhering to that. There's this macho element to them, and having a macho female, I mean, that queer men love a macho female. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. We love them. We love them. Because, and I, I have a theory about that. I, I reckon it's because in a society where the female is seen as weak and we might be perceived as weak, seeing someone that has strength and is defiant in their femininity, I think that's very attractive for us. For sure. Mm. That's why feminism and queer rights, it's all the same thing. We're all fighting misogyny. We're all fighting the same fight on some level. We want to be free. Mm -hmm. And women definitely, when we saw them act out of quote unquote character, us queens, we applaud. I applaud. <laughs> when you when you are not quiet, when you are expected to be quiet, I applaud you. Cause we grew up similarly, you know? It was like don't express, don't be, don't be. Just just behave. Yes. And their fight lines up with our fight, you know? So at school, did you start Going out and finding your community, you were going to the queer community center, you said. I kind of wonder when you stepped 
into clubs and find that community. I think from a certain generation, the way that we found safety in expressing ourselves was through dressing up as new wavers or goths or punks, you know? Or all of them. Or all of them, you know? <laughs> it was safer to wear your, like, you know, paisley tights and dyeing your hair a certain color and your combat boots and having all your ears pierced and everything as a goth mm -hmm. or as a punk before asserting yourself and saying, like, I'm queer. So my first experiences in clubs were really those clubs and I would get dressed up mm -hmm. and I would go and listen to I guess the the sort of pre-house records but they were playing early techno at the time too so I was going to goth clubs in Denver around 15 years old I 14 15 and I would get in uh, and hear things like Front 242 I'll never forget he hearing Headhunter the first time in a nightclub or hearing Lords of Acid, which is hilarious, but I loved it at the time. Uh, <laughs> Thrill Kill Cult, uh, Nitzer Ebb, things like that. That was like my first kind of foray into going out into the club and meeting other freaks, quote unquote, if you will, you know, because we were just thrown into that camp, you know, the goths, the punks, and the freak camp, you know? Yeah. And then. I remember being handed a flyer one day to go to something like a rave, a warehouse party. And I thought to myself, hmm, let's see what this is. I'll never forget. It was actually mostly hardcore techno. Mm -hmm. Ron Decor, uh, an L.A. hardcore DJ, was playing. It wasn't really my bag, but I definitely liked the scene. So after that... I found my way into more house-oriented nights. At the time, I was one of those people that could find LSD pretty easily. So people would talk to me regularly. <laughs> and I ended up finding a community of gay men and gay people who they started to take me to specific clubs. And mm -hmm. I would get snuck into 21 and over clubs at 15 or 16 years old and got to hear some incredible music, incredible DJs. People who were at the time were like remixing Mariah Carey. And mm -hmm. like they were actually big time, but from Denver. And whenever a Chicago DJ would roll in, I would see Mark Freeno, or I'd see Derek, or I'd see Sneak, or I'd see all of the Chicago guys. And then the West Coast people were coming and I was seeing them a lot. So I would be seeing... Garth and Thomas and Yano and the British expats who moved to San Francisco and created the San Francisco sound. Mm -hmm. And then when the New York folk would come, I'd be going and hearing them. Frankie Bones would come into town and I'd go to that rave. So probably by the time I was like 17 or 18, I had seen, I'd say a fair amount of legends play, you know, like... Pierre, mm. Derek Carter. Yeah, I had already gotten very immersed by that age. What a beautiful start. I, I had a similar thing of going from that teenage thing of being more alternative, finding a tribe within that before coming out. You know, where I grew up to be a goth, you were basically called a queer anyway. Yeah. Or to be 
and indicate you were kind of called a faggot anyway. So it was at least there was kind of a group support to it somehow. But then I think in finding ecstasy and LSD, LSD was actually my first drug at 14 also. And finding those two things kind of moved me over back into the synthetics of like late disco and house. And I wonder if house music is just goth music for gay people on ecstasy. <laughs> it's, like just, it's just a hybrid of it. I mean, I still love things like The Mission and Front 242. I went to see Depeche Mode, which is a very light version of EBM pop. But, you know, their early stuff as well was massive for me. And I went to see them the other day, actually. Amazing. Which was so good. Was it good? It was beautiful to see. And I still, there is still a little teenage glamour goth, not very deep inside of me. <laughs> I can believe that. I believe that a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think of Susie. I mean, how how can as a queer boy, how can you not love that raging banshee of a woman? You know, or, or Sinead. They're both massive for me. I actually met Susie twice. Wow. I had like a little live project around the time when I started to DJ and. I was just kind of doing the circuit in London, like doing some live shows and things going around and doing random gigs on a Wednesday night in, you know, a drag queen bar or a strip bar in Soho. And I was on a lineup with a friend of hers and I was in the backstage talking to the friend and Susie just came out of the toilet <laughs> into the room and it was just like the three of us. And I, I was like, oh, you're Susie Sue. And she just went, Row! she barked at me. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds so perfect. That's so appropriate. I didn't. My dog is now barking. I there didn't want anything one. else yeah. from her. But but haven't you worked with Budgie? Didn't Budgie I do did. some stuff? I hey, worked. shut it. That was me. Yeah, I worked with Budgie on the last record, just on a bunch of tracks in general, uh, which was really fun. And, I, you know, really fun to hear his stories. I mean, he's really one of those formative characters because he was in this, he was playing for the Slits before the Banshees. Wow. And he was like, Tons wow. of stories and such. He's an incredible, incredible person. Uh, so it was a really, really, really great pleasure to work with him. An honor, of course. And he totally helped define the sound of my last album. Mm. And it was really a special thing. And how amazing as well, you know, from Hercules being like, you know, from your first big hits being very kind of house, soulful, uplifting and then for you to trace that back to like budgie on drums that's fucking great yeah well it's kind of like what we were talking about there was this thing where i was sort of like regressing or remembering reflecting and going back and returning and saying to myself oh you remember the first people who really accepted me it was that girl marcia with the black hair who was writing in her journal it alone in the coffee house with black lipstick like caked on white makeup she told me to sit down and she became one of my first friends. Like we were accepted by this other community, you know, before I could say the word queer or gay, I just knew they weren't going to judge me. Yeah. And it just brought me back. I was flooded with all of these memories, like in terms of the music that I listened to at the time, which was like, I found so much solace and comfort in, you know, like whether it be the Cocteau Twins or Dead Can Dance or some of the angry music like Killing Joke or, or Ministry or any of that, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. It turned the dial for me. And 
it amped me up in a way in terms of like feeling more confident in my identity. I just remembered experiencing music that opened up a different set of emotions than what normally happen on a dance floor uh, for me. So as an artist, it was kind of like, I just, I want to go explore that. I want to go back and feel those feelings again. I want to go see what was there. Join the dots. Yeah, join the dots. The dots aren't that far apart. When you really look at it and you think about Throb and Gristle and you think about Chris and Cozy and then you think about the fact that, you know, Coil was experimenting with House and techno in yeah. the early 90s. And Chris and Cozy were seminally influential for all techno heads. And Psychic TV was exploring Acid House. I mean, the dots really aren't that far apart. Yeah, it's not a big stretch. I'm just thinking of like all those goth women and those goth friends that we've had that have been kind of this resting nest for us as queer kids to like rest in for a while and then take flight as flamingos it's like quite an image (laughs) (laughs) that's a very sweet way of putting it it's so true so would you pick the Nitzereb record for that time if I was to push you for a record you said that had a massive impact on you when you first heard it or could you choose a record there I'd say the first one that made me recognize my otherness and kind of like bolstered my queerness would be the first time I heard Situation. Yeah. I would say in terms of nightclubbing, it's a hard thing. You asked me this, like, what was the track (laughs) in the club? And um, I was like, this, well, I gave you like six labels and like six. I'll pull one out of the hat. You can choose it just for today as well. Yeah, it's just for today. Yeah. Every now and then, you make me feel so special. Every now and then, by Merck, I would say. Uh, Ralph Falcon, I love that record. Um, and that's all that this, the song says. And it's sung by a man. Every now and then, you make me feel so special. And that's the entirety of it. But mm. I don't know. It, it just moved me so much as a kid. And it's such a, it was like such a deep, deep record for me. So I would say that, and the dub mix is really sick, so. There's something about that record that reminds me of the simplicity of Sylvester, I Need Someone to Love, because that's just Mm. one sentence repeated again. Completely. You know, it's that pop thing of being able to reduce a hundred emotions into one sentence. Totally. And when you do that, I mean, I get a shiver talking about it, but when when you're able to make something concise like that, You don't need other words. I think that's such an interesting connection. Like that track is a perfect parallel. It's almost the same instrumentation. It's like bass, drums, vocal, like maybe a dreamy, freaky synth, and that's it. Mm -hmm. But I would say that would probably be the one that made me, I don't know, what would be the word? Feel myself more than any other I just felt real, you know? I felt very, very... Mighty real? Mighty real. (laughs) I definitely felt mighty real. Without sounding (laughs) too cliche, I just... I felt myself. I I was feeling myself hard when I would hear that song played out. In a way, it kind of reinforces... I would say that song really reinforced that kind of sense of, I'm here, you know? Like, I am here. 
And we talk about, you know, that you mentioned cliches and I have a theory that we're all cliches. It just depends which one you're happy to content to lean into. But, you know, <laughs> feeling yourself is so important for us because we grow up with mostly a lack of support to some degree. And that thing of feeling yourself is, is that's a moment of pride. That's a moment of hope. It's a moment of self-assuredness. It's a, it's a moment of being on your own team. And, and something that's common within the podcast and these chats is music being the vehicle for that. And it's just lovely to hear you use that expression around music. Isn't it that moment, though, we all have it where you're just like, oh, I fe I'm feeling, I feel right. <laughs> all it is is that damn song that you're listening to. It's amazing that music mm -hmm. can do that to you. When did you start like going from the dance floor to the booth? My first gig, I was 15 years old. Wow. And it was in a leather bar downtown. It's a good start. And it was not one to be remembered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's kind of a legend. I mean, legendary. It's like it's on my stupid Wikipedia, so I guess it's legendary. I mean, yeah, I was 15 years old. I was snuck into a sort of fetish bar. They had me play before a really, actually a good Chicago DJ. And I was all over the place. I would play all kinds of genres. I was very... I was very ahead of my time, very eclectic. I, um, <laughs> at one point, the, the police came and I had to be taken to the toilets. The door girl, Samantha, Samantha Thunder, chocolate thunder pussy, had to just sit me down and say, she said, hush, she would just be quiet. And I thought I was going to get in trouble, but I didn't. They left and... I left right after because <laughs> um, it freaked me out. That was the first gig I had. And then I started playing in like at kind of house parties. And then in New York, I started playing at my university. I would, I would actually hold events. I'd get them to pay for DJs to come to the college and DJ and have parties. And then once I was like 19, 20... I started to play out in New York City and um, mm -hmm. had my, I guess, my first residency at like 21 in that crappy, crappy spot, the whole lovely, but sound was horrible. I also, when I started to DJ in London, where I was DJing, had really shit sound, but I'm so grateful to it now because <laughs> I can basically mix without a monitor. It's like no, I can do everything in my headphones. You're like, also... Just very good at mixing Cormac. <laughs> You're also just very well, good. Because of technically those. very yeah, it could have been cutting your teeth. I just see I did the opposite yeah. thing. I just stopped listening to the monitors and I was just I'm just playing it. Good luck. Let's see what happens. It was a really fun time because it was the moment that um it was the moment that Electro Clash was kind of happening. And, you know, the early beat pitch control records, the Gigolo records, mm. the, you know, that mm. first wave, the clone records. We, we loved all that stuff. I loved all that stuff. Um, but overall, I was like, I was playing house music. And it was a moment in New York where mm -hmm. people weren't playing house music. And if they were playing house music, they were playing this very handbag house kind of thing. I mean, yeah. I say that, which is a little bit rude. 
but um, because some of it is great stuff, you know. Yeah. And there were some legends, like warriors, who just carried on. Like throughout the whole mm. time I was in New York, Body and Soul was happening, and I was yeah. going and hearing Francois and Danny, and they were mm-hmm. tearing it up on. Any given Sunday afternoon, you could go get massively inspired by them. But the town itself was leaning much more towards a sort of electro and sort of even glammy, rocky kind of thing, mm-hmm. which we we touched yeah. on. And I, I played a little bit of, but, but it was house. It was really more about house and disco and Italo and... Like, and those things. Yeah, I remember that period before Electroclash. Maybe something that was very charming about Electroclash was that it was so accessible. It was kind of punk in a way. It was like, do it yourself. Like, get a four track and do it yourself. For sure. And those, like, the first Scissor Sisters demos and the first performances by Scissor oh Sisters, I re- that, that yeah. was major. I remember seeing those kids, like, when we were, there would be 12 of us in the audience, and it was like something was about to happen. Oh yeah, with those kids because they were amazing performers. Yeah, and the tracks were really good. That, I remember playing with the Scissor Sisters very early on before they kind of made it. I remember warming up a gig for them in London, and the energy that they created on stage was just like, what the fuck? Yeah, Gossip had it also, but later I remember seeing Gossip and just being like, how did that sound come out of three people? Like I just couldn't get my head around yeah. it. It was like, what the fuck was that? That's yeah. for sure. But may I also say, at the, at the risk of sounding sycophantic, before knowing you, I've been to some of your gigs, and I've especially been to some gigs in Berlin, and Hercules and Love Affair have that also. Like, there is a, a magic that happens on stage very often where it's like, where is that coming from? Is it actually coming from them? You know, it's that transcendent thing of music. Like, you have it also. That's very sweet of you. I think I've been blessed to have some amazing live performers. I've been very blessed because I'm not honestly very much of a natural performer. Uh, so I've been very, very lucky to have the collaborators that I've had who um, have shined in different ways. And it definitely was always this collective thing that would happen on stage. And yeah, we've had some really good runs. We had some really special moments in all of the different incarnations that have been Hercules and Love Affair. But yeah, I think it's fascinating when you see just like a single solid band that have known each other for years and years, like the gossip, like they just, you just feel like they started out in a garage and they like know each other so well Uh and they just do their thing, you know? Yeah. I've been more fortunate to sort of like have like singular, standout, amazing performers and personalities. Mm -hmm. So I I feel very fortunate in that regard. There's something very fresh and innovative about Hercules being a project as opposed to a band, because, you know, we're so indoctrinated with that idea of a band being a band and band members. And with Depeche Mode, for example, so many people were caught up in the characters of the band the other night. And then there's a tribute to Andy Fletcher and stuff, but it's very fresh as well. It's a bit like Warholian or Fluxus or something to be like the incarnation of the project at the moment. It allows a lot of movement, development. and I was really inspired to, to approach it that way by 
collectives. Mm. So like, you know, the wild bunch that turned into Massive Attack. Like Massive Attack had this very elusive, mm-hmm. like, who are they? What are they? Who's singing now? What's that? Is it them? Is it his? Is that that kind of thing? They were a big inspiration mm-hmm. in terms of the concept. But uh, funnily enough, um, another band I mentioned earlier, uh, Ministry, their live shows in the early 90s and late 80s, they would just have like 12 people from like 10 different bands. It would be like someone from Public Image Limited, someone from Killing Joke, someone from Rigor Mortis, someone from Skinny Puppy, someone from this band, someone from that band, Throw a Cole. Everyone would be on stage and you'd be like, whose band is this? Like, what is this? And I loved <laughs> the fact that it was not about a person. It was a, I've never been, well, I say this, but then as a fanboy, I don't totally mean it. But I've never been a huge fan of the notion of like, like a cult of personality. Like I didn't ever want mm. the project to become this notion of a cult of personality. You know, I wanted it to be about the music uh-huh. and not about just the people involved. The you know? individuals, um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I was never really attracted, honestly, to pop stars. Like the closest thing to a pop star for me that I would say I really, really adored would be Sinead. And I mean, maybe at one point, Michael Stipe, I sort of R.E.M. I loved, but like... It's funny because Sinead wasn't really embracing being a pop star either. No. <laughs> it's funny how like you, you're like, I'm not really into the cult personality. Neither was she. But uh, it's funny <laughs> because the, the, you connect those two together because I... I think I listened to something with Michael and but he said oh you know like I didn't really know what to do so I just did my best Sinead O'Connor dance and I was like oh I totally see it <laughs> I'm gonna make you choose a record from your early sets I know we're gonna mention situation again because I'm sure that's okay that's okay from early sets I was very diverse I was very eclectic as I said I was just exploring dance music so I was exploring electronic music so I was playing everything from LFO oh, to oh. um like I, w- I was playing MK featuring Ilana like every song they would put out I would play so that's a pretty far going from that to that yeah. to than an 80s hit. But that's because I was also listening to these DJs that were doing that. Like you would hear mm. Garth, I mean, those Tonka sound system, that Harvey approach where it's like, or yeah, Chicago kids would do it too. I mean, speaking of Abracadabra, I mean, Derek Carter used to mix Abracadabra under house tracks, like, and just let it come in and come out and come in and come out. So I got this thing where I was like, I, I can play an 80s song too. It doesn't have to only be this or that. Yeah. But definitely those early MK records were big for me. I love that. And also there's something about pop music that can bring people together when you, in any situation. So when you layer it like that, I think it just makes sense in our gay heads. I think we we all love a bit of an 80s acapella somewhere. Or, you're really good at it. Well, you're pretty good at it as well, I must say. I was very impressed with your <laughs> you're pretty good at last it. time. I was loving it. The eclecticism has always kind of been in my sets. Yeah. But I have to be honest and say those early pop house records, I guess it was post Robin S, but like MK's records with Alana mm-hmm. were like big ones for me. So as queer people, we share this connection of music. I think 
we often also share some of our struggles. And I'm very interested in how music supports us in those tough times. You know, everyone struggles to some degree. There is a certain struggle to being queer in the world and growing up queer in a very heteronormative world. And, you know, there's various nuance to different people's struggles. But, you know, I, I deal with depression and I've dealt with that since my teens. I'm also in recovery from addiction and music has been a big support to me while finding other forms of support, let's say, and continues to be a big support to me. And I'm always really reluctant to use the word like spiritual practice, but I'm very interested to know if you have a sanity practice, A, for being a queer person in the world, and B, for being a touring artist in the world, because they're both kind of intersections. I do, definitely. And it's not been an easy journey for me. It's not been a straightforward path for me. But I definitely have like tools that I use and employ and need, you know. I have some mental health struggles around addiction, abuse, substance abuse, uh, anxiety, PTSD, things like this. I think the things that are helping me the most at the moment are... Um, Definitely a daily meditative practice. Um, I have a spiritual teacher who teaches me those techniques. I have a program of recovery. Mm-hmm. I have gestalt therapist that I just started working with a couple of months ago. And I exercise. And that's also really important for me mm-hmm. to just be yeah, a process emotion. Yeah, I mean, those are my stabilizers, you know. Those are the things that I kind of Mm. help me realize what my condition is at the moment because it's kind of something that I have to be conscious of and mindful of. And touring is really hard. It's hard because you can lose that routine and you can lose sometimes your connection with people, you know. Mm. You might have that person that you talk to on the daily who you can't talk to because you're in a different time zone and they're not available or, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to pre-plan. And that's something else I've learned about touring is that like I've had to become or I'm having to become even more boundary than I ever was before. It's like for my health, my spiritual, my mental well-being, I can't be in this environment. I need this mm-hmm. taken care of like this. I need this taken care of like this. Like, This is just how it has to be. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, one of the things I need to start employing, which I don't do enough of, is like I stay 15 minutes after my set and I leave. Like I don't Mm -hmm. stay longer as much as I want to be around friends and stuff. Like if I'm on tour, I know I need sleep. Mm -hmm. I know I need quiet. I know I need to calm down from the performance that I just had. Mm And if I go for another hour listening to someone else, talking to people and doing whatever, Mm. I will be that much further away from a decent night's sleep and a sense of well-being the next day. So I have to take Mm -hmm. extra precaution and maybe more so than other people. It's lovely to hear you mention those. Most people that I've spoken to, most queer people, that journey of learning to say what it is we need has been a bit of a struggle. And I think for me as well, knowing what I needed has been a bit of a struggle. Like I would say sometimes my house was on fire before I knew that someone had lit a candle. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. like it was very extreme. Like it it was hard to know sometimes what 
was going on for me or what was needed. But the only way I've learned it. Yeah, yeah. you learn from burning the house down a few times. <laughs> but that thing as well of, you know, our work life is in other people's social lives. And I find it hard sometimes to say, like, actually, I'm not coming for dinner or I'm not doing this. And, and something that really helped me was rather than make it about me was to be like, this is about the show. Like if my gig is to go really well, this is what is needed. And that helped me somehow. And then I was able to say, oh, actually, that's what I need. And it's been a bit of a process of learning how to boundary things well. And it's all of those things I find. I also meditate and I'm in recovery and I'm in therapy. And like these things change as well. There's no set thing. It's a very dynamic part of life. It changes. Like there's always, I try to have things in place, but then there's variations of them. Like it's a living, breathing entity keeping ourselves well. Yeah, it can't strangle us, you know? No. It's like the same thing. Like, I can't beat myself up if I didn't get 45 minutes of meditation every day. You know what I mean? Like, if I miss a day, it's like, it's okay. There's a Bjork song about that where she's like, six glasses of water, seven phone calls, eight hours of sleep. And then she's like, just leave it alone. Stop it. Stop controlling it. It's not up to you. Like, let everything go for a moment. I have to do my best, though. And I have to be more vigilant than others. But I've had to learn that. Do you have music that you, you lean on in those times? Do you have, like, a track that you can lean on as a soother or as a expresser? Or Before I had recovery, I used to lie on the floor and listen to PJ Harvey and scream. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's like... I, I do kickboxing and boxing. So the cathartic element in terms of like releasing like anger and stuff that I have, I mean, that's usually coupled with a soundtrack of like heavy, 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 heavy metal. So like thrash and death metal, mm -hmm. um, which I also love and grew up loving. But I would say, you know, in terms of the more soothing, there is um, a Sikh musician called Nirin Jinkar. I've just listened to her music on loop when I'll be on a plane, for instance, and, you know, everybody's boarding and it's like the, the anxiety of just boarding a plane, mm -hmm. the amount of like hus, like fuss and people and bags going into overhead compartments of this and that. It's like, I'll just put that on and it will just make everything kind of go away. And I can kind of realize that, yeah, mm. something right is happening in this moment, even though it feels like everything wrong is happening mm. in this moment, you know? I would say that. And then also there's a couple of like psychedelic folk bands that just have this super positive approach towards life. Like some kind of hippie music helps me a lot too. Mm. So I want to bring it up into the current. Andy, I played with you recently and I genuinely must tell you that I really love what you play. And I think we should Aww. play more often together, actually. Because yeah, I mean, that, even this conversation, like, we have so many crossovers, but I just loved what you played. And you played like some edits that I hadn't heard before. You played something that you maybe made with Jason. Was it like an Into the Groove thing or something? Yeah. Of Into the Groove? Jason Kendig and I. It was very nice. But there's definitely some crossovers there. You know, the thing that makes a good back-to-back, -back, for example, is when you're really thrilled to hear the next record that the person you're playing with is about to play. And I think for that reason, we would have a lot of fun. But I want to ask you, what's a current killer track in your in your record bag USB? So I have a friend called Lipless. 
he is kind of my go-to producer. I love, love, love. He's my friend, but I also, I'm just a big fanboy of his. So he, he recently put out an EP that I played a lot. One track specifically called Diet 505. Uh-huh. It has this classic kind of Black Riot, Todd Terry synth element to it. And then his drum programming is just phenomenal. And his ear is just incredible. Mm-hmm. The way he tunes things like for the floor is just amazing. So I actually bring most of my stuff to him for at least an opinion, but sometimes for a mix. Oh, nice. Sometimes actually he mixes my music. I've done remixes with him. He is probably one of my favorite producers at the moment, and that would be a track I love, love, love. Great. I also love um, Orion Agassi right now out of Spain. He's just a killer, killer, killer producer, editor, just a artist. So... Those would be two. It's really filthy. Yeah. The Orion stuff is really filthy. It's almost like a bit ghetto tech or something. Sometimes the the roughness of it, it's very sexy. Yeah. He gets it, you know, and he, he gets it from a specific angle. Like, I love how much access to, like, a Latin perspective he brings mm-hmm. to a listener, you know? Yeah. So I've been playing a lot of his stuff, too. It's funny to go full circle and end with those artists because something that we didn't mention that I think is very present in your music, which you can hear, is funk. There's a funkiness to your music as well. And and I can hear that in the Orion stuff as well. There's like a, it's like dirty funk. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I definitely explored that at points for sure. And will do. I have some things on the horizon which have a little bit of a, a low-slung dark and funky kind of thing happening yeah can i ask you when you're doing creative writing is it mostly with the intention of songwriting or is it creative writing just for the sake of creative writing Mm, no no it's actually like literary so i just write stories beautiful it all started because i reread an edgar Allan poe story and it got me writing (laughs) i'll never be that good but I'll try it anyways. That's how I am. Andy, I could talk to you for a long time, but I know you have things to do. And But it's been a real pleasure chatting to you. And the trajectory of your story is fascinating. We grew up in different parts of the world, but there's a lot of crossovers and similarities. And one of the joys of the podcast is, for many of us, that isolation of growing up and then realizing in these moments that there was a synergy to what was happening with all of us. And uh, Yeah, it is beautiful. Because you realize the the connectedness. Well, you've been a perfect guest for touching upon that. We have to sort out a back-to-back together. Let's do it. bug you for that. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Queerly Beloved with me, Cormac. You can find the playlist of all the music featured in today's episode in the episode description. And while you're there, please do hit subscribe so you don't miss out on my conversations with other talented people. A big thank you to Michael Lane, my producer, my manager, Melissa Taylor at Tailored Communication, and of course, to Amazon Music for their support. Take care of yourself. All the best. Bye. Bye.